And we're going to dive into Revelation. This is the new study. Now, before we get there, open to Revelation chapter 1. We're actually not going to get through Revelation chapter 1 tonight. Uh, we, there's a good chance we may not get to Revelation chapter 1 tonight. Because I'm going to kind of build a foundation before we do that. But, you know, when you get into this book, it's, it's hotly contested. So what I want to do is I want to read chapter 1 real quick. Just start to finish with it. To give you a, a flavor of what the book is. Okay? Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1. It says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is, is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, <coughs> excuse me, and has made us kings and priests, to his God and Father, to him be glory, dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him, even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet, and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as the snow, and his eyes like flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice is the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun, shining in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars of the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. And then in chapter 2, he starts getting into those specific seven churches. But if you get a flavor of this book, it's already filled in the first chapter with lots of symbolism. There's a lot of things going on. This book is extremely contested, extremely confusing. And so what we're going to look at is when we get in and get in this, is the first thing that we're going to do is we're going to look at something that is called eschatology. Now, I know most of you guys in here probably know what this is, okay? But what eschatology is, is the study of the Bible when it comes to the teachings of Scripture about end times, so the period of time in which Christ is going to return. So it's dealing with the subject of the resurrection of the whole body, the rapture, the tribulation, 
the millennium, the binding of Satan, the three witnesses, the final judgment, what we call Armageddon in the new heavens and the new earth. And so eschatology is all of this. This is the study of end times things. They, Bible scholars put all these big fancy names on things. Like if you've ever heard of pneumatology. Pneumatology is the study of the Holy Spirit. Okay? Or ecclesiology. Okay? It's the study of the church. So they keep throwing these big fancy, why don't they just call it the study of the church? The study of the Holy Spirit. Well, they have to sound smarter than the rest of us, I guess. I don't know. But... But, uh, and so this is what we're looking at. We're looking at what's called eschatology. And it's going to give us an understanding of the different things that are going on, some of which we're going to be able to look at the world around us, because some of this we're going to see some fulfillment in. But that's really not our, our destination with all this. We're not to just look at current events and say, okay, well, this is what's going on in this chapter and all of that. It's to understand it from a biblical perspective, because the book of Revelation has allusions to the Old Testament over 800 times. That's not, it's a lot. And so in order to understand it, we have to have the mindset of that the people that it was written to, which it was ultimately written to these seven churches, this is a foundation that they would have had. We're going to go back into the Old Testament and pull out what the meanings of these different things are. And so we're going to take our time with this. It's going to be extremely slow moving because... It's confusing, and we want to stay together and stay on the same page. This often gets skipped over in churches. They don't talk about it. They don't study it. They don't look at it um, because there's a lot of different viewpoints, and there's a lot of arguments among believers. And not arguments in the sense that, you know, they're not saved if they don't believe like I believe. That's not the case at all. Um, it's actually a great book for a new believer. That's somebody who's just given their life to Christ. Now, the first thing that we need to understand here is what is the title of the book? Revelation. revelation, not revelations. It's singular, not plural, right? It is the revelation given to Jesus Christ, okay? So it is a singular revelation. This word revelation comes from the Greek word apocalypso. It's used in two different ways. It's 19 times it's used as a noun, talking revelation, or it means to unveil or to uncover. And 26 times it's used as a verb, which means to reveal it. It's being revealed, okay? It's used in different format. The point being is that there's so much mystery and confusion, all of that. The name itself means to reveal. That means we should be able to understand it if we take our time. But there are so many voices out there. There are so many different beliefs, different church denominations that, that believe different things. And we're going to look at that here momentarily and we'll have some of these different things. So when we break down the New Testament, okay, you've got five books of the New Testament, which is the Gospel and the Acts, right? You have five books, okay? Then you get what's called into Paul's epistles, the ones that we know for sure that Paul wrote. So that would exclude uh, Hebrews, because we don't know for sure that he wrote it. It's not titled. It doesn't have his name on it. He didn't say I, Paul, or did no salutation or anything like that. There are 13 of those. It's Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. That was fun, wasn't it? Yeah. Then you get into what's called the Hebrew epistles. Okay? The Hebrew epistles. This would be pretty much everything else, right? This would be, there's eight of them. So the book of Hebrews, 
Book of James, First, Second Peter, all three of John's work, and of course Jude. Okay, so this is the breakdown of how the New Testament works. And then, of course, there's one prophetic book. Anybody want to take a stab at what that might be? Yeah, the Revelation. Right. So when we look at this, this is how we always imagine it when we when we talk about these different things. That there are, uh, we know the gospel and the Acts. No question about that. You could say that. Remember that we just finished teaching through the book of Acts. That's Luke two. He was written by Luke. But then you've got all these epistles. Like, okay, well, 13 plus 8, there's 21 epistles, right? If you want to get technical, there's actually seven more epistles in the New Testament. That's not written by one of the disciples. It's in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation. Because those are letters to specific churches. What was an epistle? It was a letter to somebody. And in that, there's challenges. It tells them the good that they're doing. tells them the bad that they're doing. And so you could make the case that these things are uh, written by Jesus and they're sent to a specific people. And I'm going to show you how all of those apply to individual churches and how they apply to church ages as well. Okay, So I'll show you some different layers when we get to that, that, uh, that whole idea. So when it comes to this, if we look at the Old Testament, what we see in the Old Testament, remember the Old Testament is about Jesus. He said that the whole of the book is about me. So, the Old Testament is Christ and prophecy, would be the behold, he comes. He's coming. The Messiah is coming, right? When you get to the Gospels, it's actually Christ in history. He's here. It's on the earth. What did he come to do? He came to die, right? In the book of Acts, it's Christ in the church. It's the Acts of the Apostles, but Jesus is at the center of it. It's all about him. In all the epistles, it's Christ in the experience of the church. How do we worship him? How do we serve him? How do we do these different things now? And then, of course, the apocalypse or revelation is Christ coming back. That's what it's all about. Okay? That's why we do this. So, this is kind of a nutshell, but the bottom line is, you bring all of this down, we're getting into eschatology. So now, there are some terms I'm going to write down here that I want to show you that you may or may not have heard before. And these are different views of end times, okay? They've been around for millennia. They'll be around for until Jesus comes back. The first one is a millennial. A millennial. Basically, when you break this down into two, you've got ah, which means no, millennia. They do not believe in the literal <laughs> thousand-year reign of Christ. Okay, so it's an eschatology. It's the rejection of the belief that Jesus is going to have a literal thousand-year-long physical reign on the earth. This contrasts what you've heard maybe pre-millennial or post-millennial or things like that. We'll talk about those in the in a bit. So they believe that Christ himself is now sitting on the throne of David up in heaven and that the church age is the kingdom of which Christ reigns over. Okay, does that make sense? So essentially what they do is they allegorize a lot of different things. Yes? But we passed through 2,000 years now. This a millennial. Thousand, God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Does that mean he only owns the cattle on if we had to go count the thousand hills? That's how they're looking at it. 
Does that make sense? I'm just telling you the viewpoint. I'm not sharing you that with you. I agree with it because I do not. But this is where it is, okay? So they assume that most or all of the unfulfilled prophecy is in symbolic or figurative language, maybe it's spiritualized or something like that. So they assign these different meanings and um, to the parts of Scripture that instead of what we would call a normal contextual meaning, in other words, Scripture interprets Scripture. In this, there, um, there's a group called the Idealist, okay? And so Origen held to this. Augustine, honestly, most of your denominations hold to this view. I'm going to read you a list of them, just to give you an example. And this isn't, you know, bash on denominations or anything like that. But uh, Roman Catholic Church holds to amillennialism. Lutheran, that doesn't mean that every Lutheran does, but the Lutheran as a whole. Um, the Reformed Church does. Anglican, Methodist, uh, what are some? Churches of Christ, uh, the Christian Church or the Disciples of Christ hold to that view. Um, Association of Grace Baptist Churches in England. Presbyterian hold to that view. I mean, a lot of ones that you guys are really familiar with hold to this view. And they allegorize a lot of Scripture. Now, there's a problem with that. The first thing is, is they believe that the church is the fulfillment of Israel. They don't see them as distinct. They see that the church... And so we get into what we... Um, basically, that all the promises that were written to the nation of Israel now apply to the church. And again, don't go out there thinking, oh my goodness, all these denominations believe all this. That doesn't mean that everybody in them does. Because a lot of times they don't. That's the overarching view of it. That doesn't mean the pastor of that church necessarily does. Um, but, but a lot of it, that's what comes from, I'll call it the mothership, but whatever, you know, guards over the, the dom denomination. But So they don't assume any of this stuff is going to be literally fulfilled. His first coming was all. When he came, that was literally fulfilled. That was it. So the prophecies concerning Christ's second company coming, they do not expect to be fulfilled literally. They think he's reigning now and things like that. So they give this allegory, allegorical interpretation of all these unfulfilled prophecies. So here, there, there's several problems with this, right? I mean, you're probably thinking about Because in Zechariah, says that Christ's feet will touch the Mount of Olives probably prior to him setting up the kingdom, right? Uh, during the kingdom reign that the Messiah is going to execute judgment on the earth. That's in Jeremiah, that he's not done that yet. So how do we allegorize that? Um, the kingdom is actually described as being under heaven in the book of Daniel. Not in heaven, from heaven, it's under heaven. And then you've got all these earthly changes that come in prior to the kingdom arriving and all of these different things that, that are going on. And not to mention the, the chronological events that take place in Revelation that, you know, about this earthly kingdom and all. I mean, there's just, there's so many holes for the first time ever. Now, here's why a lot of people hold to this. They've been taught it in church or they were taught it in seminary. And they've never gone out to say, does this whole water, the scripture align with this belief? Last summer, when I, you know, you guys know every year I go around and I do some apologetic conferences and I do things like that, that I help Brian Young and I teach at these different things. I was the first time I've ever met somebody who came to the conclusion that amillennialist uh, was the correct interpretation. He claimed strictly from reading scripture is what he said. That he held a different view. He decided he's going to go to scripture itself and that is the conclusion he came to. And all the years I've been doing this, that's the first time that's ever happened. I'm sure there are others. I've just never met them. 
So again, this does not mean they're not saved. This does not mean they're not born again. This is not a litmus test for salvation. This means that they hold to a, an end times view that doesn't line up with the whole of Scripture. Out of this comes an offshoot called preterism. You ever heard of that? And there's two parts of this. There's a partial preterist and a full preterist. But basically, the way they take a look at it is they interpret um, some or all the prophecies, depending on where they fall, of the Bible events that have already taken place. It's only applicable. It had to be fulfilled in the first century. So all of it, um, the end time stuff, have already been fulfilled. It's in the past. So basically, all the end time prophecies in the New Testament were fulfilled in AD 70 when the Romans attacked and destroyed Jer yeah, Jerusalem. So they teach that every event normally associated with end times, like we were talking about Christ's second coming and all of that, has already happened. In the case of the final judgment, it's still in the process of being fulfilled because Jesus' return to the earth was a spiritual one. It's not a physical one. But they teach that the law was fulfilled in A.D. 70, and God's covenant with Israel ended at that point. Okay? Now, that doesn't make sense. Jesus said that, you know, when he was on the cross, he said, it is finished. But, you know, I mean, there's just a lot of different things. When it talks about the new heavens and the new earth that are in the end of Revelation 21, they say that's the description of the world under the new covenant. And so, just as a Christian has made a new creation, the world is under a new covenant and is the new earth. And so, this is an aspect that leads to a lot of what you call um, replacement theology, that the church has somehow replaced Israel. Yes, ma'am. That the new earth doesn't have a sea. You're, listen, don't start thinking like that. This is telling you what they believe. Now, I will tell you, you guys familiar with Michael Brown? He's a theologian. He's got a radio show. He's a good guy. He actually debated, uh, maybe two years ago, a card-carrying preterist. And that preterist did a very good job of holding his... I mean, he was educated in Scripture. I was, I was super impressed. He's still wrong. But I was impressed with it. Because honestly, you get somebody in one of these camps and you say, from the Bible, build your case. They cannot do it. This guy did a good job with it. I mean, he knew his stuff and he held the dispute. And so basically, we're in that reign now. It's all allegory. The problem when you start doing that kind of stuff is what? Just think about it from a common sense standpoint. What happens when we begin to simply allegorize Scripture? Then you got to figure out which one's an allegory, which one's That's not. just it. So where does the allegory stop? Well, Jesus didn't really die on the cross. It was an allegory about the suffering that we have to face. I mean, where, where do you draw the line? There is no one. Now, there are different language uses all throughout Scripture, and there are allegorical parts that are simply, you know, that, that we don't really believe that God has wings like an eagle, okay? You know, it's metaphors and similes, and there's all these different things that are used, but, but still... Okay, here's another one. Now this one has lost some some traction through the years. It's not as popular as it was, but post-millennialism. Okay, these are distinct. So this is kind of a grouping that was distinct. Basically means that Christ will physically return to the earth only after a non-literal millennium is completed. In other words, that thousand years is a long time, but it's not a literal thousand years. 
the, the reign, that time, that clock started when Jesus first came to the earth. That's when it started. He's never going to sit on a physical third, uh, throne on the earth. His reign will increase over time. In other words, as we're out building the kingdom, discipling all of that kind of stuff, his reign will increase over the earth. So it's not a thousand years. It's, it's a very long time. Where we don't know how long. And so essentially you get to this utopian society where everybody loves Jesus and follows Jesus. The kingdom is built by believers. That's, that's how they, that is the kingdom of God. You and I are building the kingdom. There is an element of truth to that, but that is not necessarily when it comes to end time. Out of this comes reconstructionism. Another one you might see is called theonomy. Okay? I only have so much board, so I'm going to write that one. Theonomy, they're not exactly the same, but they're very close. Theonomy would be best understood as that the civil law that God gave Israel in the Old Testament ought to be the law of the land in all the nations, everywhere. Okay? It's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, there was nothing wrong with it. Reconstruction is seen more as a synonym. It would include those same convictions that we are just talking about, that the Old Testament law, but it would also add this optimistic, uh, eschatological idea that the kingdom of God is growing and will, before the return of Christ, covers the world and all of that kind of stuff. They, 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 it's like that law will increase, the ceremonial laws will increase, all of these different things will increase. And then, at some point, Christ will return. But it's not a literal thousand years. Okay? Now, a lot of your Reformed churches will fall somewhere in this category. And they would call this kind of a historical belief or something like that. So you guys see, I mean, there's a lot of different, different views. There's a, there's a lot of different things out there. Then we get into what we would say that we believe is that we are pre-millennial. Okay? You, most of your believers are going to stand in this camp. Your common God. Most of the stuff you see out on the internet, that's where they're going to fall. I mean, your prophecy guys, most of them, if not all of them, are pre-millennial. We would call them a futurist or this prophetic. Okay? But out of this comes two different kinds of pre-millennialists. Because we can't keep it simple, can we? You've got historic pre-millennialists. And you've got dispensational. Can you guys actually read my hand right? No. It's better than it normally is. I'm actually kind of proud of myself. Um, so there's two historical premillennials place the return of Christ just before the millennium will start, but it's going to be after this great apostasy and this major tribulation, and they believe that, again, the church is the fulfillment of Israel. So in other words, Israel is not distinct. It's, you know, it's not the church. is all promises written to Israel all throughout Scripture that have not been fulfilled yet are belonging to the church. We just take them. Now, dispensational premillennialism, this is where I fall, okay? And I would say this is where most people, most people don't realize there's a distinction here. When they, most of the time you're going to hear premillennial. That's where they stand. But that Christ will come before a seven-year period of intense tribulation and take his church. This will be the rapture. We'll get into that in a little bit. 
into heaven. And after this fulfillment, uh, this divine wrath will come, and he's going to rule from this holy city, the new Jerusalem, of the nations for a literal 1,000 years. The biggest key to that is, is that Israel and the church are two distinct animals. They have different origins. They have different destinies. Okay? And if you study your scriptures well, you cannot help, whether you believe any of the other stuff that may go along with it, you cannot help but believe that Israel and the church are not the same thing. It's different language written to them. And you will see that distinctly in the book of Revelation. And I will show that to you when they when we get there. Okay? So we would say that we are premillennial, that we're a dispensational premillennial. Why? Now, did you notice how many of these, and there are others than just this, but these are the biggies. These are the ones you're going to hear the most of if you have or have not. Um, but you notice that all of them require us to allegorize Scripture. And because of that, that the idea of Israel and the church meld together. It's one thing, right? And you notice that with the exception of premillennial. Okay? So have you ever wondered why the church has always been anti-Semitic through the years and things like that? Part of it is they don't believe that there is something special that God has for Israel. Even though for all of time he was his chosen nation, his elect people, and all of that, all of that's taken away now the church has fulfilled that. There is not a single scripture that says that, not one. Then, okay, so if we weren't having enough fun, then you get out of here and you come to your three ideas about premillennialism, right? Now this one, you're going to be familiar, okay? You have your post-trib, your mid-trib, and your pre-trib, pre-tribulation, mid-tribulation, post-tribulation, okay? Out of that, right? And so everybody falls in this camp. Now, I'm going to write this down low, just because I'm running out of room, but I want you to see it. I don't know if I'm spelling that right. You got allegorical on here, and you got literal on here. And if I drew a line across here, and I wrote a word that you should be familiar with because we talk about it often. It, early on in the book of Acts. Hermeneutics. Hermeneutics means how you interpret Scripture. The one thing that you'll notice is that if you allegorize the better part of Scripture, where do you end up? You end up on kind of this side of the table. If you take it more literally, you end up on this side of the table. There's another thing that I've noticed through the years. Depending on what your views of Israel are, whether they're distinct, or whether you believe that the church is, is a somehow a fulfillment of that, you'll end up over here more versus over here. Now, that's not always the case. As an example, I would say most of us in this room, if not all of us, believe in the pre-trib rapture, that prior to the tribulation of seven years, the fulfillment of Daniel's 70 weeks in that time period, at the end of that 69 week, uh, that God is going to come, he's going to remove his church, then the tribulation starts, which is a seven-year period. And at the end of that seven-year period, here comes the millennium, the thousand-year reign of Christ. That's where most of us would probably fall. Depend, what I've noticed is that if you believe that the church and Israel are distinct, that's typically where you end up. If you believe they meld together, most of the time you're going to fall into the post of the mid-tree. Does that make sense? Now, that is not always 100%. As an example, Michael Brown, he believes that the church and Israel are very separate. 
He is a dispensational, premillennial, post-tribulation. Put that on your business card. And he says it just like that, as if we're supposed to know what any of that means. Right? But he's a uh, doctorate in Semitic languages, so he can do whatever he wants. <laughs> Brian Young is another example, okay? Now, Brian has, not that he believes that the church is the fulfillment of Israel, but he's kind of in between somewhere there, but he falls into the post-trip camp. Okay? Brian's a good guy. He's been a friend of mine for years. In fact, we do ministry together several times throughout the years. And so, again, this is not something that we need to divide on. All right? Because I'm not going to come here and try to sell you an idea whether it's pre-trip. If you don't believe this, you're dead wrong. Because the reality is, folks, is that there is holes in every one of these systems. There is. Nobody has it all figured out. There is not a single verse that says, hey, on this day, at this time, this is when the rapture is going to occur. So what everybody's doing is building their best case from the use of Scripture. And somebody is wrong. And we're going to leave it at that. Because I don't care. You know, everybody wants to get out early. And they, all the post-trip guys are saying, well, you pre-trip guys, you just want to get out of here before it gets bad. Well, yeah, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. But the reality is, it's like, you know what? If it is post-trip and we have to go through the tribulation, then God will sustain you. Yes. And I'm going to trust him. Yes, sir. Actually, everybody <laughs> because if you read Revelation and study it, there's about three different times that people can break up. Well, we'll get there. We'll get there. So you just slow your roll. We're not even in verse one, chapter one yet. Easy, Jim. No, you know, I, I mean, it's just one of the But I have literally seen, I have, I have seen people uninvited guest speakers because they don't share their view on this. I have seen churches divide over stuff like this. This is not stuff we divide over. This is stuff that's like, you know what, I don't really care what you believe. I just don't. Okay? Now, there's a problem with a lot of the allegorical beliefs when it comes to eschatology and, and, and the, um, not so much the timing of the rapture, but, but whether God meant what he said, right? First of all, Revelation, as you read, it says this book of prophecy. It claims to be prophecy, right? So you've got a problem there. In the Old Testament, there are 1,845 references to Christ's rule on the earth. 1,845 in the Old Testament. And 17 of those Old Testament books gives prominence to that very issue. It's an awful lot of writing if it's just an allegorical story. And this is, I mean... Part of it is, is because they're looking, remember the Jews were looking for that reigning king, right? That's part of the reason they missed it. Because they were not looking for the suffering servant, they were looking for the ruling Messiah. Jesus came as a suffering servant. They thought two Messiahs would come once and not one come twice. Yeah. Yeah. <coughs> There's a lot of things there. And that's part of, of why they missed it. So, in the New Testament, there are 318 references to a second coming out of 216 chapters. So you think maybe he meant, hey, I'm coming back. Maybe, maybe, just maybe. 23 out of the 27 books of the New Testament mention it in some capacity. The ones that don't are letters to specific people like Philemon. You know, I mean, those are just one example. So most people are either amillennial or premillennial, and some of you didn't know you were any of the annuals until the night. Now you got to figure out, oh man, am I dispositional, premillennial, pre-trip rapture? Am I? 
you know? I mean, it's, it's, it's funny. Right? And so it all has to do with hermeneutics because it, whether you take it allegorical or this is why it's so important. The key is, is we allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. Okay? It's not my opinion. It's not your opinion. Does it go contrary to what the Bible says as a whole? Okay. So there's a couple of different things that I want to show you through here. Um, there's something that's called heptatic structure. I'm just going to, you know what? I'm not going to get into that tonight. Well, I'll, okay. Let me briefly, let me briefly discuss it because it's, it's a heptatic structure. I'll write that down so you can, you can see it. That's a B. Sorry. Heptatic. It just means sevens. Okay. It means what? Seven. The number seven. Sevens. There's, in the book of Revelation, you're going to see uh, in several different places um, all of these seven. Of, how many churches did he write to? There were seven. Seven is the number of completion. Okay, so there's a bunch of different stuff there, but, but you're going to notice that uh, there's going to be six. So like there's six, uh, all right, Jen, help me out. Six, slipping my mind. There's six. There's six of something. There's a pause, and then there's the seven. And then that seven, so like there's the seven <laughs> scrolls. Let's use scrolls as an example. Sorry. What's that again? I said in the, in the trumpets. Okay, you've got six, and it's a lot of ways for Right, so, right, right. Uh, and there's a lot, a lot of that heptads. Well, everything is like six. Six vials, six trumpets. Right. Yeah, yeah. And so you're going to see, so like as an example, there is, I think there's seven scrolls. So you got the six, you got a break, there's a time period there, whatever it is. And then the seventh scroll has the seven trumpets. And you've got the same thing. So like um, this chapters 10 through 14 is an example, is the pause in those trumpets, okay? And then the seventh trumpet is chapter 15, which is the seven bowls of God's wrath that's, that's poured out. And chapter 16 is that pause between six and seven. So there's, there's some of that stuff. And you also, I mean, there's just seven different I'm going to kind of point that out. Again, I'm just trying to give you an idea of some of the stuff that we're going to kind of get into specifically. But uh, Each one fills in another. Yes, each one fills in another. And so there's just so much there. Um, I'm skipping through some different stuff because I don't want to. Overwhelmness. Yeah, I really don't. We're not done. We're not done. No, overwhelmed. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay, are there any questions about any of this stuff? I mean, I'm I want to go slow. I told Isaac tonight, my goal is to talk slow. I know that's asking a lot for me, but it is, because there's just so much stuff here, and there's it, it's like, it can be confusing. Um, all right, so here's what I'm going to do. Let's do this. I'm going to show you some stuff. We're not even going to get into Revelation. I want to show you some stuff getting, before we start the book um, next week where to get an idea of what we're dealing with. Because there are some, the passage, like I said, there's over 800 Old Testament passages. Some of them are real easy to understand some and direct. Some of them are cloudy and it's confusing. But all of it presumes a knowledge of the Old Testament. 
Now, we're going to be in good shape for that for the most part because we spent the last year finding Christ in the Old Testament, right? So we have at least a basic understanding of the Old Testament, what the point of it was, what the author was trying to get across. We've been going through and we're almost done with that. And then we're going to get into the seven feasts of Israel. And I'm going to show you that and how all of those point to Christ. And some of those have to do with the book of Revelation. So the timing's impeccable. Also, the first weekend in April, Brian Young will be here. And he's going to teach that Sunday morning. And then that Sunday night, we are going to do a Seder meal, which is a Passover meal. And he's going to show how everything they do is completely close to Christ. And when we get done, one, it'll give you a new appreciation for Scripture and all the stuff that they do. Two, it will boggle your mind how the Jews don't see this because they act this out every single year. Like, how do you not see Jesus here? But in the words of Peter, they're willfully ignorant. So, okay. So let's talk about John. John is the guy that wrote the book of uh, Revelation. He wrote the Gospel of John, obviously. And he wrote three epistles. 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Now, 1st John is a sermon on love. 2nd John, some say that it's a sermon to Mary. Okay? There's mixed views on that. Um, it's a possibility that it is. And you get into the original language and being the elect lady and different things like that. There are also some holes in that because a lot of them believe that these were written after he leaves the island of Patmos. And we'll talk about that more in a minute. And at that point, Mary was dead. So if he wrote her a letter, she didn't read it. So... Anyway, and then the third letter is a, a personal note to a guy named Gaius. Now, John was born in Bethsaida, okay? The same place where Jesus fed the 5,000. Bethsaida. He was born to somebody named Zebedee and Salome. These people were very likely well off. They were part of a, a group of Galilean fishermen. They were business partners with Peter and Andrew. Um, they likely had some money. And, and the reason they say that is that he had some connections with some of the high priests there was one way to get those connections. That talked. Okay? And so, he, they, a lot of guys believe that he was an early disciple of John the Baptist, even before becoming a disciple of Jesus himself. That he was well-versed in the teachings of John. And so, as I said, he was well-connected. Now, John, the Gospel of John, we talk about as this book of love. It was the, the disciple whom Jesus loved, right? That's how he refers to himself all the time in that. So they say, well, it's about this loving guy. Well, his nickname was the Son of Thunder. He wasn't exactly this, you know, walking around hugging everybody type of guy, right? He, I mean, he, he had kind of a, uh, a different demeanor than that. Do you guys remember the Old Testament from the one that God specifically said, this is the one that I love? There's one in the Old Testament, one in the New Testament. New Testament is John. We just talked about it a few weeks ago. Come on, folks. You've got to quit napping during my sermons. <laughs> Daniel. Daniel oh, yeah. is the one. Yeah, you do that. Come on, Yoli. Yoli always knows. She's always good. Yeah, right. <laughs> so John was kind of a part, when it comes to the disciples of Jesus, of the inner circle. He was part of the big three, Peter, James, and John. They were there at the Mount Transfiguration. They were there when Jairus' daughter was uh, raised. He was there during the Olivet Discourse. And John was special to Jesus because when Jesus was hanging on the cross, he assigned his mother to John to take care of her. Mm -hmm. And so John and Mary was going to move to Ephesus somewhere around 67 AD. And they lived just outside of town. They didn't live actually in the town of Ephesus. Now at this point, Timothy is the pastor over Ephesus. Paul has been beheaded. He's gone. John is going to take a more prominent role in this Asia Minor area, it's modern-day Turkey, as kind of a leader, a, a significant leader over the churches, where a lot of people are actually going to come to him, and he will travel some, but he is there taking care of Mary. He took care of her until the day she died. 
the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, where they say is where Mary is buried, is actually not where Mary is buried because they don't know where she was buried, but it likely would have been in Ephesus because that's where they lived at the time of her death. But for 27 years, John helps guide the churches from his home. And so at the age of 90, so he's an old man, he gets arrested and he gets sent to Rome and he's got to face trial with a guy named Domitian. He's the emperor there. He's arrested as a political offender and I'll explain that more here in a minute. From here, he's going to get banished from Ephesus when he gets convicted. He's going to be exiled to the island of Pathos. It's in the 14th year of Domitian and he reigns, or excuse me, uh, and this happens about 95 AD. So here you've got Ephesus right here. That P is the island of Patmos. It's a dinky, dinky little island. Okay? Now before I go into the details about the island of Patmos, and it's still there today, and I'm going to show you a picture of where John lived on this island here in a moment. But the question is, why did John get arrested? Right? Because the Bible does not tell us. It says from the island of Patmos. You've got to get into some history here of what's going on. So that's what I'm going to show you because there's a lot of backstory that goes on here, okay? So Domitian, D-O-M-I-T-I-A-N, that's how you spell it, Domitian. I may not even be saying that correctly. He ends up taking over rulers for his brother Titus in 81 AD. His brother ruled for two years and got mysteriously ill, okay? So he hadn't been there very long. Now, they always said Domitian was always jealous of his older brother. Their father had been the ruler. And so as <coughs> Titus is dying, Domitian goes to the, the, the procurators and these different governors and stuff like that and demands that they name him the new emperor even before the death. That's not normally how it works. They wait for the guys to die. These people do it. And so a lot of people assume that he has something to do with the death of his brother and very likely did, as you'll see here in a moment. Now, he becomes the sole ruler of the entire Roman Empire, which is very best. Everything you see here, for the most part, was part of the Roman Empire. I mean, it was a vast expanse. Now, at first, he actually seemed like a pretty decent ruler. He was a smart guy. He was well-educated. He had a really good understanding of economics. And one thing that, that the Romans loved, that he was deeply immersed in pagan idolatry. And they loved it. They had all these different gods. They had all over. Ephesus uh, had Athena. You know, John actually on Ephesus lived behind the palace or the temple to Athena. Okay? He was also a great builder. A lot of the big buildings that get built in the Roman Empire, he had something to do with. And so, initially, he seemed, everybody loved him. He cared for the welfare of the empire. But that's going to change because his true colors begins to show. He actually is known as one of the most wicked tyrants in all of Roman history. Okay? So, at this point, he's, everything was going well. He's a few years into it. He names himself called Censor Perpetuus. Censor, C-E-N-S-O-R, Perpetuus, P-E-R-P-E-T-U-U-S. It means perpetual censor. What this does is it makes him the legal, moral authority over everything that goes on in the kingdom. So in other words, that if he likes it, then it's good. If he doesn't like it, then it's bad. Does that sound like that could be a problem, perhaps? Yeah, exactly. So, it gives him the right to censor or eliminate any part of society that he deemed was offensive or unnecessary. 
and he is going to take advantage of that. It also gives him the right to do that with any group or any individual of people. Anybody that goes against what he says is not good. You're kind of picking up on why maybe John gets arrested. Okay. Now, the people here didn't like this. They, they hated it. Uh, there wasn't much they could do about it, but they felt it very hypocritical because there was a lot of rumors that went around that he was in incestual relationships and was having homosexual relationships with young boys. Okay? So they, you know, he's the moral authority. He can call that good, bad. It's up to him. Now, he takes advantage of this new law, and he basically would arrest anybody he didn't like. One writer, uh, one of the ancient writers back during his, his uh, time period here, wrote Domitian's men delighted in inserting fires through the victim's private parts to elicit false confessions and to be entertained by the uh, pain of others. Yeah. Kind of like a group of good guys, doesn't it? Pliny the Younger, you guys familiar with that name? He's an ancient writer, he's a well-known historian, Pliny. If you ever took any like advanced high school literary classes or any college literary classes, there's a good chance you've read something of his at some point. If you haven't, you haven't missed a whole. It's good writing, but it's not anything that we would read. You know, you're not just going to go to the library and pick up the book by Pliny the Younger. Here's what he wrote. He said, I stood amidst the flames of thunderbolts dropping all around me, and there were certain clear indications to make me suppose a like end was awaiting me. So this was going on. He was about to do so in 93 AD, he goes completely nuts. And then he names himself, forgive my pronouncing of this, Dominus et Deus. Dominus et Deus, probably how you say that. Which means Lord and God. Now, most emperors, after they die, they get deified in the Roman Empire. So it was this Greek mindset, uh, just kind of like the Caesars. The Caesar will worship as God. No different here. But he did not want to wait until he was dead. So he demanded that it happens now. And what he can do it because of what he had made himself the basically the moral authority. And so what would happen is that anytime there was an image of him, people would pass it, they would bow their heads to it, or they would go to these temples and they would bow to the images of it, and they would burn incense on the altars. And anybody who refused to do this was arrested, they would be imprisoned, they'd either be exiled, which would be the Patmos, or they'd be killed. Okay? It was one of those things. Now, does that sound like anything that we read in the book of Daniel? Absolutely. Nebuchadnezzar all over again. Same thing, right? Now, he's going to end up dying in 96 AD. He gets stabbed by a servant named Stephanos. Um, he goes into his room. He's trying to take a nap. Stephanos goes in there. He's got the glass. He's got a knife in. He just assumes he's there. He's a servant. And he stabs him a couple of times. Well, he didn't get him. And he gets up and they start fighting. And uh, the rest of the group that was also these conspirators that were against him have to come in and finish the guy off. So he was so wicked that after his death, the Senate issues a decree and edict that damned Domitian's rule and called for the eradication of his memory. He had had temples built to himself. There was images of him all over the place. They tore everything down. Every building that he had built and all of that, they tore down. Anything that was built to honor him, gone. They wanted no memory of him. And plus, any of the prisoners that were arrested falsely were given amnesty and released. Now, that's how John gets off the island. And this is in 96 AD. So, basically, he is standing trial before Domitian. And just John now, okay? He orders John that he's got to burn this incense, which was a pagan ritual to save his life. And John refuses. And because of that, and we know all about this event because a guy named Tertullian writes about it. This is how we know the backstory on it, okay? 
Domitian was extremely furious about this. And so what he did is he ordered John to be thrown into a vat of boiling oil. Okay? Now, many of you have heard this. Now, some people will deny that this ever happened. Hippolytus wrote about this. Tertullian wrote about this. There's no evidence of it. And, of course, John ultimately survives. He doesn't die. And so the reason a lot of people denied it is, why do you think they denied it? This happened. <coughs> What's that? They don't believe the supernatural. They're trying to be like, well, that couldn't have happened because you can't survive that. Well, these guys wrote a lot of history, and we have no problem accepting it. This very likely happened. We don't know for sure. Could be a fanciful story. So, but, um, but yeah, it certainly is a supernatural. He gets out of the vat of oil unharmed, and it completely freaks out the mission. And so what he does is he orders him to Patmos, and he exiles him to Patmos. Okay? That's how he ends up on the island. So at first they tried to kill John, and it didn't work. So, I mean, you guys have heard of that story, right? Most of us probably have at some point or not. That's where it comes from. It's the writings of Hippolytus and Tertullian. Okay? Now, the island of Patmos, as you can see, is dinky. The P is bigger than the island to give you a, a perspective on that. It's six miles by 10 miles. It's not very big, okay? It's about 40 miles from Miletus. It's 24 miles off the coast. Again, this is modern-day Turkey, so this was called Asia Minor back then. If it says Asia in your Bible, this area all up here is what that's referring to. That's Asia, okay? And it is only 60 miles away from Ephesus, which is where his home was. So this island is close to home. This was their version of Alcatraz, okay? To put that, I have to give you an understanding. This is where they would send the scum of society out there. And so when they would arrive, they would get divided into two groups. The first group was your common criminals. The second group was your political offenders. And then each group would be either transferred to a different part of the island or whatever. Now, what they would do as soon as they get off, the prisoners would be scourged. And the reason they did that is to let them know they aren't going to tolerate anything, any nonsense from them. Now, early Christian writers state that the prisoners worked in mines. Now, there's been a lot of excavation where they can find no evidence of any mines existing. That does not mean that they did it, but they've not found anything archaeological pointing to that. Uh, but the political offenders, like John, okay, so you're common crime, think you're murderers, you're rapists, all that kind of stuff. They send them there, they put them to work in some capacity. They'd also take care of them. Your political offenders, not so much. They weren't treated as harshly, but they were left out on their own. They had to fend for themselves. They had to feed themselves, had to clothe themselves, they had to find water, they had to do all of that. So basically, when they got off the ship, they get divided into two groups. Your common criminals, they beat them. They didn't always beat, sometimes they did just for the fun of it, beat your political offenders, but they would just basically turn them loose and they'd have to walk. John's 90 years old. He's an old man, right? So you've got harsh elements, you're out in, there's no homes, there's not like there's a building you know, thing going on here. And so most of the people that would go in this capacity would die of starvation or disease or something like that. They very seldom made it because they were out there on their own. But what would happen is communities would begin to develop on the island of these political offenders to try to help each other out. Now John arrives in 95 AD and when he gets there, there's already several of their communities. Now there doesn't mean, there's no evidence that he ever actually joined one of them, but he would have been familiar with them. So, um, let's see here. I'm going to show you this too. What happens, in, and again, we don't see this necessarily in Scripture. It's said that John climbs a mountain and he builds a, finds a cave. He climbs up the top of this hill. This is the cave. This is a modern picture of this cave. Imagine that. They've created a, a chapel in it. 
mm-hmm. of sort. Now, what's happened a lot of times with, especially some of the early, early churches, is that anywhere an apostle was, died, anything like that, they'd go and they'd build a church there or do something there, and people would essentially worship the site of really what they're doing. Uh, but this is it today. And this is, they call it the cave, it's called the Cave of Revelation. It's a big shot there, because they believe that this is where he was when he got the revelation of Revelation. Okay? But after Domitian dies, he gets amnesty, he gets off the island. It's kind of like Survivor. He gets voted off the island, mm-hmm. gets to go home. And he ends up going back to Ephesus is where he ends up going back to. Um, he does travel some other places, but he returns home, essentially. So, now, let me tell you, there's a, there's a, a, a um, thing. How are we doing on time? Oh, we're good. I'm going to finish with this. So, there is a um, story on the island. There's no... Uh, not necessarily historical information on this, and it's certainly not the scripture, but it basically is that John was not alone. He didn't come to the island alone. He did not live alone. He lived with a guy named Procurus. Okay? P-R-O-C-H-U-R-A-S. Now, Procurus is in scripture. He's in Acts chapter 6. He's one of the deacons. When they called the deacons and they chose the deacons, the people of the island believe this. In fact, monks will give tour of this stuff, and they will talk about the guy named Procurus. And so... What he did, he first ministered with Peter in Judea, in the, in the area of Judea. And then later, he's going to be ordained as the bishop of Nicodemia, Dima, which is in Northwest Asia Minor. And then after this time, he serves as John's helper. And they say that he helped him write the book of John. Okay, So what they believe is that he was there when John goes into the Revelation, right? He goes into this trance, and he says that he's weak, he's laying there, and God's telling him to write it down, that he's hearing these things that John is saying, and he is the guy that actually pins the book of Revelation for curious. So that, that pops up from time to time. After this whole thing takes place at time of the island, he supposedly goes back to Ephesus with John, and he is his scribe, essentially, and he writes the first those three letters of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Which, again, if that's the time frame that, that happened, then Mary's completely out of the picture. So, um, <coughs> there is no scriptural evidence of that. There is really not any historical evidence of that. You know, it's just kind of a uh, thing of the island. So... Interesting stuff. So this is kind of the background story. Now you understand Patmos. This is where it took place. This is why John was there. This is the people. I wanted you guys to get an understanding of this because as we go through this, we're going to show you some different things that are have to do with all of this kind of stuff. And I know it's a lot of information and I don't want to overwhelm you. Are there any questions about any of this stuff that we went through tonight? And you guys are easy on me. <laughs> I must say, there's no test. No test. Just the one you got to answer to Jesus for. Well, good. Well, let's, we'll pray here, but next week we're going to get into Revelation chapter 1. And as I said, we're going to take our time with it. It might take us two or three weeks to get through chapter 1. But I'm going to show you a lot of, um, a lot of different things that are going on in those first opening letters. I would encourage you to go home and read it. I would ask you who it was written to who was written by, and why those seven churches? Why not any of There are a lot of churches. Why not the church in Jerusalem? You know, the big churches. Why these seven churches? 